Hi, everybody. This is Bill Fulton, the editor of California Planning and Development Report, and I'm here with my main man, Josh Stevens, the associate editor who's been on the ground reporting on lots of things in California lately on planning. Uh, Josh, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm okay. You know, cooped up in West L.A., but can't complain. How about you, Bill? Well, there's worse places to be cooped up than West L.A., I think, right? Right. right. Uh, speaking of cooped up, I know you have been doing some reporting for CPR lately about what's happening about planners being cooped up in California and how the planning process and permit approvals are moving forward now that most everybody's working remotely. Uh, what mm -hmm. kinds of things have you been, yeah, what kinds of things you've been finding out? Sure. So we're in an interesting moment, obviously. City life is shut down, but the business of planning, based on my reporting, is, is proceeding. Um, you know, most cities, if not all cities in the state, are on some sort of lockdown and are limited to essential services. And for whatever, you know, for better or for worse, planners are not considered essential. So most planners in the state are no longer in their offices. They have retreated to their homes, just as all the rest of us have. But I spoke to a few planners and a few sort of statewide leaders involved with land use to find out exactly what, you know, what is the average planner doing, um, public sector planner doing during the lockdown, and what are planning department's priorities. And despite the gravity of the situation, most of the people I spoke to were fairly calm and straightforward and felt that even though everyone's having to improvise right now, many planning departments are going on with business, you know, almost as usual. Um, the, the biggest component of that is that for the everyday things like plan check, like permit processing, mm -hmm. right. um, you know, especially for smaller projects, people are building an ADU or they're building a house or whatnot. Um, Many departments have already, over the past few years, shifted from the physical planting, planning counter where a developer or architect brings their plans and has to physically go from place to place to electronic processing. And that, for many departments, is a godsend, um, whereby developers and architects can upload their plans online for, through a portal, and those plans get beamed across the internet and rather than end up on a planner's desk in City Hall, are now ending up on their kitchen table. Um, well, that's, de that's definitely an improvement. I can remember when I was the planning director of San Diego a few years ago, um, all in the decrepit old building we were located in, all the elevators broke down all at once. And so we had to create, <laughs> we had to create a bucket brigade in the stairways to get the plans up and down from, from one floor to another. But it sounds like what's happening with planning is the same thing that's happening with many other things uh, in our society, which is this, this move toward online, wor online work and, 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 passing information around online is, is simply accelerating really fast now, much more than it might have otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Christopher Kuntz in Long Beach told me an interesting little anecdote about their shift to online processing. He said that literally up to the moment when the shutdown occurred, Long Beach was accepting both electronic and hard copy plans, um, just sort of at the discretion of whoever the applicant was. And he said that actually the larger projects tended to use hard copy, ironically, hmm. because those often included multiple architecture firms or different designers or engineering firms. And
accept things in one bundle. So the only way to ensure that everyone was sending in everything all at once <laughs> was to physically put those papers together. Whereas if you had an ADU, architect could just shoot in the ADU plans. Um, so what, what he said is that this is actually accelerating um, the use of electronic processing, which in the long run, you know, as you said, kind of could be good for everybody. Is, and what about public meetings? Is anybody having public meetings mm -hmm. these days? And, and how is that affecting the ability to approve both projects and plans? Yeah, so what everyone implied was for small projects, things really might go on as usual. An individual planner can look at the plans, decide if it's compliant and, and stamp it, or at least you know, confirm with their superiors. Obviously larger projects require are going to require public hearings be they planning commission hearings and even city council hearings and so forth that is going to be the sticking point for larger projects because cities are they're they're, they're not there yet this has only been going on for what two weeks or so and cities don't necessarily have the capability and certainly don't have it on their schedules to put the necessary meetings online, um, especially the big meetings like planning commission. So if you look at, you know, I just sort of did a casual survey of cities online schedules. And as we can all imagine, all the meetings have big red canceled stamped all over them. Um, you know, although, knows what, what... Although the governor <laughs> has uh, waived the Brown Act requirement that everybody be there in person, right? And I know right. in, so, in some cases, even if the elected officials are there in person, presumably stand, sitting six feet apart from each other, other people, participants, applicants, uh, uh, public members are 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 are, are uh, videoing in maybe to try to, to to see what's going on and also make their comments. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. One of Governor Governor Newsom's um, executive orders did loosen some requirements for the Brown Act, um, not entirely, but loosened enough to allow for online meetings. So I think what we're going to see as cities set their priorities and sort of circle the wagons, will they'll be taking advantage of this loosening so the planning commissions can meet online, you know, how, whatever the configuration has to be so that the planner can say his or her piece in front of the commission, the applicant will be able to beam in, presumably the public will be able to beam in and, and present their comments, same as they would in person. So, you know, one, one of the silver linings of this um, may be that, e you know, electronic government becomes much more robust um, just out of necessity. So it'll accelerate that too. Um, yeah. And I, and I just want to say in, in concluding about this topic that, that CPDR is, as I said to, uh, in an email to our subscribers this week, completely virtual already. We're, we, we all work remotely everything we do, every, all of our work products are online. So, so I'm happy to say we were ahead of the curve and, right. and, and what we're doing is totally unaffected by all this stuff, at least at this point, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, our interviews are by phone and email and all the rest. So we're, we're hoping to, um, and, and, and the good news is it's California. So the, the amount of stories that we can cover um, is basically infinite whether there's a shutdown or not um, in all the there's various always, corners. There's always somebody yeah. proposing something and always somebody against it. Right. And I think the, the last thing I would say about the shutdown and what in plan departments is uh, what I've been talking about mostly are the short term, again, the you know permit processing and so forth. There's this whole long-term component whereby um, 
you know, even though the long term is a little bit hard to imagine right now, given that we don't even know how long the virus crisis will last, but eventually we will emerge from our homes and we will get back into city life. Um, a lot of departments are planning on doing quite a bit of long range planning while they're shut down. Um, you know, some people told me that they have a lot of projects that are sort of long-term projects have been on the back burner because the development cycle has been so robust lately. And especially as permits get pushed through and perhaps there are gonna be fewer applications in the coming weeks, um, many planners might be shifted to long-term projects, be it, you know, redrafting an ordinance or, you know, looking at how one policy matches up with the general plan and so forth. Um, uh, departments have grants like SB2 grants to do long-term planning. And again, a lot of people told me that that stuff um, may even benefit from the shutdown, you know, yeah. as planners just need things to do. As long as they've got the money to do it, the experience of the 2008 recession was that, you know, there's an old joke in planning that, that when, when the development cycle is busy, you're too busy to, when the development cycle is up, you're too busy to, uh, uh, to do long-range planning, and when the development cycle is down, you don't have enough money to do it, right? And mm -hmm. but, so, to the extent that this stuff is uh, dependent on uh, general fund money, particularly sales tax, I think you, I would think that that's at risk. But as you say, the state has intervened with a lot of money, particularly in housing, in the last few years, and so a lot of cities are sitting, as you said, on SB two money or other state-funded projects that that they can probably move forward on. So that's kind of an interesting twist on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. And it's all evolving, obviously, and we'll, we, we will continue to cover this on okay. multiple angles. Great. Well, thanks for uh, all that uh, uh, frontline reporting on, on the COVID virus and, and planners in California. You're welcome. It, it, was a, it was a rare breaking news story in the world of planning. <laughs>
homeowners um, and other sort of you know growth skeptics were up in arms about these um, these bills, you know, which of course would have required cities to raise densities in certain places, particularly around transit, job centers, and so forth. And you know, for obvious reasons, that was considered to be um, kind of threatening and certainly unusual from for some people. On the other hand we have the rising YIMBY movement um, for whom Wiener is sort of one of their, you know, standard bearers and for whom SB 15, SB 27 were really exciting and very much the embodiment of what they've been, you know, advocating for basically more housing, more housing. And, um, and also a confirmation that their movement is, has reached the mainstream. And so far as they got, you know, two major statewide bills that, that went fairly far, although not, you know, not as far as the proponents would have liked. So SB 50 um, died a few weeks ago um, before the, the deadline to get out of committee in the end of January. And, you know, as, as big a deal as SB 50 would have been, I sort of looked back at the last three years of the housing crisis and housing legislation. And, you know, what we have in those three years are literally dozens of state laws that have been passed to promote housing. We have laws that strengthen the regional housing needs allocation process. We have laws that provide funding for housing. We have laws that provide funding for planning for housing. Um, we have all these things that have accumulated. So. On the one hand, as big as SB 50 would have been, it was by you know, nothing close to the only game in town. And as we look at it from this vantage point, remember, SB 827 was originally introduced in 2018. And, we've, and there were laws that did pass in 2018. There were laws that did pass in 2019. So SB 50 failed in a much different world than the world in which SB 827 was introduced. And one big aspect of that world, which was aided by legislation of the past, is that the regional housing needs allocation process has been significantly strengthened in that time. And at the very moment that SB 50 was on its last legs, we see things like the, like the SCAG region, the Southern California Association of Governments, you know, asking in, in, last, in fall of 2019, for an allocation on the order of like 600,000 or 700,000 units. And the state in the form of the Housing Community Development Department said, no way, we're allocating you over 1.3 million units. And that's the number that went back to SCAG. That's the number that the SCAG Regional Council um, deliberated on and eventually you know, certified. And in certifying, they you know, came up with their allocation among their you know, nearly 100 um, member jurisdictions. So if you think about it, if, and again, I'm taking SCAG just as one example, because the other MPOs are going to be addressing this as well. But the SCAG region now has to add 1.4 million units, they have to plan for it at least. And if we think about how those cities are going to plan for it, basically, they're going to be forced to do basically what SB 50 would have done, which means they're going to have to look at their high value areas, they're going to have to look at their transit, they're going to have to look at where their jobs are. And if they're doing this logically, they're going to have to plan accordingly. And if they don't do that, and then I guess they're going to have to sort of scatter uh, units throughout their cities, or they're going to just have to sort of randomly pick sites that happen to look like high value sites and just plop, you know, zone uh, accordingly. And I don't think that's going to fly with their constituents. So I think that in one way or another, 
the planning in California for the foreseeable future is going to kind of follow an SB 50 model. So that, that was my thesis for the piece that I wrote. And I cited some of the laws that have been passed and so forth. Um, you, we also want to look at all the transit that has come online and it is coming online in the time we've been debating over SB 8278, SB 50. And that will obviously, again, necessarily drive a lot of the development and that transit and there's more trends on the way that's tied to um, SB 375, the sustainable community strategies and transportation funding and all the rest. So, you know, whether, you know, by hook or crook, this vision for urban growth may yet come to pass. That, that's uh, my thesis, at least. Now, speaking of RENA and the housing elements, uh, when Governor Newsom came in and he wanted to make a big deal out of this, he he, he decided to try to make an example of the city of Huntington Beach. He sued Huntington Beach mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, uh, for uh, basically downzoning where they had previously, for, via, for not being in compliance with their own housing element by downzoning after upzoning uh, a couple of the boulevards, Edinger <laughs> and Beach Boulevard in Huntington Beach, right? And so kind of a very typical mm -hmm. beach town uh, growth debate, right? Uh, uh, where they had upzoned the commercial corridors to a lot of a lot to do a lot of housing, and then after they got the housing element comp uh, compliance letter from HCD, they downzoned. Uh, but now you're now you say I, you did some reporting recently, which which found out that in fact, and this was uh, now this is now official since you wrote the story that that uh, that Huntington Beach has now uh, uh, rezoned the beach beach and had Edinger Boulevards again yet again in order to comply with. Uh, uh, in order to have a compliant housing element, and HCD is happy, and Huntington Beach is sort of happy, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Huntington Beach is sort of the housing crisis in microcosm, um, especially as we look towards the next arena cycle, which is an issue of its own. But yeah, what happened in Huntington Beach was, long story short, they had zoned you know, Huntington Beach is, is largely suburban, a lot of single family homes, but they do have their boulevards. And a while back, they had zoned boulevards accordingly to allow for some high density um, residential development, especially high density residential development in, that could accommodate low income units. And in the 2013 RENA cycle, um, Huntington Beach was actually ahead on market rate units, but behind on low income units. And this plan, the, the Beach Edinger Corridor Plan, um, was going to accommodate um, what was otherwise a shortfall of low-income units. For various reasons, after that plan was originally adopted in, I want to say, 2015, it got downzoned. And basically, the city sat on its hands ever since getting downzoned, even though it wasn't compliant because the state wasn't really enforcing RENA. It didn't have the teeth to it. And for whatever reason, the state officials didn't want to go there. But there were, there, there were lawsuits actually, um, but they weren't moving very quickly. Newsom comes in and sees this existing lawsuit over these low-income housing numbers and wants to do something big on RENA. And that's low-hanging fruit. There's this case already in progress the, the evidence is already collected. The state knows they're out of compliance. So he sues them essentially further to force them into compliance. They push back a bit, but basically over the past year, and this culminated in January, the state the city basically relented and put back um, low-income units 
and the debate was only over 413 units. We weren't talking about thousands of units. We're just talking about a few hundred units. And the city was able to fit those units or zone for them on only a half a dozen parcels within this specific plan. So this was not an earth shattering, you know, sort of ask on the part of the state. Um, the city just sort of, I think, had dragged their feet partly because there's a bit of a shall we call it an anti-state sentiment. They don't like, Huntington Beach especially does not like the state to tell it what to do. Um, and there was some debate on the city council over people who want to dig in their heels versus people who prevailed by saying, you know what, this battle is not worth fighting, especially because the non-compliant housing element prevented the city from receiving state funding, including SB2 funding for a lot of other planning projects. Mm. So, mm. Um, that plan was adopted by a one vote margin and the people who voted for it basically said, you know what, A, 413 units is not a big deal and B, why are we holding up this funding? So we're gonna, we're gonna go for it um, so, and, and just go ahead and adopt it, yeah. So stay tuned on the housing and Rena stuff and, and, and as we said mm -hmm. before, maybe Senator Weiner is making more progress than we all think uh, because of all the other stuff that's going on uh, not just SB 50. Well, and here's the here's the teaser on that for Huntington Beach is their upcoming RENA allocation is now 13,000 units. So as opposed to what was we it thought before? There was the, well, 413 were the <laughs> units um, at issue. And of those 13,000, okay. there are obviously a lot of low income units. So right. this, um, <laughs> this will be continued. Okay, Bill. So we've we've talked about the the virus crisis in the terms of what planning departments are doing, but obviously there's a enormous this, as you said, the virus has kicked the housing crisis off the front pages. But that does not, by any means, mean that the housing crisis is over. And your insight column uh, this week starts to think about what the long-term implications for housing are. So why don't you talk about that? And give us your crystal ball. Well, <laughs> some crystal ball, right? Well, I went back in looking forward. I went backward and I looked at a couple of things. You may remember that when Newsom was running for governor, he said, "I want to build three and a half million units in six years." That's six, five, six hundred thousand a year. That's a level that California has never met. And in fact, uh, has only once or twice in the last 30 years has California hit um, 200,000 units. So that's a big lift to begin with. Um, uh, the other thing I, I was remembering, uh, the 2008-9-10 recession, which was very long and deep, uh, just completely whacked housing, housing development. Uh, uh, and to, down to where new construction was virtually nothing, uh, the tax revenue decreased so much that many cities wound up with no planners at all. Um, and I can personally remember, I was the deputy mayor and mayor of Ventura at that time, that um, lots and lots of really great infill projects that we approved in 2006, 7, 8 never got built or are just getting built now. So I think the potential for uh, a pretty severe drop in housing construction is is, um, is 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 very real. You know, uh, the weird thing is, in spite of all of this publicity about housing and all these loosened restrictions and all the talk that Newsom gave in 2019, housing starts actually went down in 2019 compared to 2018. I don't see how they're going to go up from here, um, uh, uh, especially since 
prices will probably now level off or drop. And one more thing I'll say, Josh, one of the weird things about, about housing in California is that is that when prices drop, that doesn't necessarily, and presumably there are more people who can afford houses, that doesn't necessarily mean housing development goes up. Sometimes it goes down because without high prices, given the high price of entitlements and planning requirements in California, sometimes developers can't make the projects pencil out. And so they can't make those projects work if the prices go down to a certain point. So I, I think we're looking at a pretty grim couple of years uh, about on housing construction and, and new permits. And I think that you know planning departments in California are so dependent on general property and sales tax and so dependent on fees from from development projects that that it's entirely possible that we will again see a hollowing out of planning departments as we did in 2008 9 10. i the, the last thing i'd say josh is that is that this may well be a rather short-term uh, a dip right um uh, if we get mm -hmm. past the virus uh and things may come back and i might be completely wrong Let's we, we 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 will see. You know, it, just an aside to that, one one person I spoke to from my story noted that um, it's also the construction, the 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 labor yes. costs and labor shortages yes. that could also cripple the construction and development. Well, industry. I think one of the things you pointed out, or that your source pointed out, is that the construction workers don't work, don't live anywhere near where we need the housing to be built, right? Um, they generally mm -hmm. live in the inland, and I know this from Southern California, they generally live in the Inland Empire. And so why are you going to drive to West LA to build a project? Or why are you going to drive from Stockton to San Francisco to build a project when, um, when, when you can build houses in Riverside County or in, or, or, or in, in Lathrop or somewhere, right? Uh, so, so I think there's two issues here with labor. One is there isn't enough of it to build as much housing as we want to build. And everybody knows that. Uh, and so, and, and the second one is this spatial mismatch. I mean, no wonder prevailing wage in, in San Francisco is 90 bucks an hour, right? Because, mm -hmm. because it, it takes a lot of money to get somebody to, to get a construction worker to either live in the Bay Area or drive from Stockton to San Francisco. So I, I think one of the points there is there are many other factors here. Let me back up. At the beginning of the Newsom administration, when this housing crisis first became extremely prevalent, everybody blamed the cities and said, oh, it's all because the cities aren't approving enough housing. And to a certain extent, that's undoubtedly true. But there are many other factors involved in whether or not housing not just gets permitted, you know, but also actually gets built. And, and a lot of those factors do not look good in the short term. Uh, uh, leveling or lower prices means developers are less likely to pursue projects and get financing. And then of course, this labor shortage that you talk about is another factor. And then there's also the cost of construction materials. And a lot of those raw materials come from China. So who knows what's gonna happen with that. Okay, well, Josh, thanks for spending the time today talking about uh, uh, planning and housing and, 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 and COVID. Uh, it's great to, to chat with you. You and I chat all the time. Uh, electronically, of course, but it's great mm -hmm. to chat. It's great to chat to chat in front of our um, subscribers and, and our listeners. Uh, and I just want to say that I hope we continue this. I think uh, going forward, CPDR is going to do more podcasts. We'll try. One of the things we want to do, I think, is to do one-on-one -on -one interviews with uh, newsmakers and others uh, who are knowledgeable about what's going on. And of course, Josh, you're always out there. Uh, all over the state, uh, uh, interviewing people, talking to them about what's really going on. Mm -hmm. So I hope I hope and we can do 
I hope we can I'll, do this I'll again. Be out there virtu- I'll be out there virtually for the next few weeks, <laughs> at least. And yeah, definitely want to keep everyone informed and keep, um, you know, keep our eye on the longer term picture and, and our, our great state. And I would say that that uh, we I think you live in West L.A., I, at, which is notorious for terrible surface street traffic congested surface street traffic all the time. I think we finally found a solution to that, right? We have, if nothing else, we have found the solution to LA traffic. We will all see right. how, we'll see how scalable it is in the long term. All right, all right, Josh, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Excellent, thanks everyone.